Hey everyone, welcome back to 60 Plus Minus for our second episode of Bingo. this semester. Let's go. Um, that was This Time Tomorrow by the Kinks of the uh, B-side of their incredible album, Lola vs. Power Man of the Money Ground Part 1. And that is the... <laughs> fucking mouthful. And, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that is the song which opens the movie, The Dodging Limited, which, uh, the Wes Anderson movie from 2007, which... Very few people seem to like, and that, and Wes Anderson. We're going to be talking about Wes Anderson, like classic film there we geeks, are. There we and are. that's what we're going to be doing. <laughs> the classic debate: which Wes Anderson movie is the best? But today we'll be talking about Wes Anderson films, which we don't think are spotlighted enough mm. compared to the more famous Rushmores, Royal Tenenbaums, the yeah. Halloween favorites, really. Oh yeah, the costumes and like um, Fantastic Mr. Fox and all of the stop motion films he's done, including. Well, really, too, actually. Fantastic Mr. Fox yeah. and Idle Dogs, right? You know, speaking of Halloween, I'm going to stop you right there, but I'd like all of the listeners to know right now the two of us are actually dressed fully in um, <coughs> Wes Anderson costumes for the mm -hmm. sake of this <laughs> show. So Aiden right now, I'm going to describe I'm going to describe him. Aiden has these these beautiful brown shoes on. He's, he's channeling Richie Tenenbaum here with a beautiful tan suit. He's got a scarf going. He's got the, the quintessential, uh, 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 what do they call it, the, for the forehead. It's a, it's a sweatband. That's what it is. And he's missing his... Tennis sweatband. He's, yeah, What's tennis sweatband. Beautiful. It's red, white, and blue. It's very oh, French. And he's missing his uh, he's got... missing his his, uh, his wristbands, but he's got them right over there on the chair right next oh, to him. Yeah. It's, so just to... it's very hot in the studio oh, yes. right now. <laughs> um... Just to paint this beautiful picture for you, we've got a lovely Richie Tenenbaum sitting right next to me and opposite, opposite me we, we've got we've got Ned Zisu the uh, estranged son <laughs> of you. Steve Zisu Get the fuck Miles Rock in the beret and the fisherman attire in the and that is one of the films we will 100% be getting on to oh yes but first we are going to start with who the hell Wes Anderson actually is mm. not that this really matters but Wes Anderson um Went to a school very similar to the school uh, used in Rushmore. If yeah. anyone's seen the film Rushmore, I mean, a lot of people I'm assuming have. Uh, it's got a very high like viewing um, record it's, on IMDb. It's not his and first, like right? That. It's Rushmore is his second feature. Second, that's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, it's the second feature. It's like um, it's probably his most autobiographical film, starring Jason Schwartzman as a kind sure. of Jason Schwartzman. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's a kind of amalgamation of him and Owen Wilson, the two writers. Owen Wilson being his college flatmate pre right. his. First movie and first short film, Bottle Rocket. Right, 96. Um, yep, 96, Rushmore, 98. Um, it was uh, produced, I, th I believe, by an associate from Disney, decided to... Oh, shit, he went to UT Austin. That's he, crazy. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that's yeah. very they, they were roommates. And yes, <laughs> they were, they were roommates they, of Owen Wilson. Yeah, and then uh, Owen Wilson <clears> would have introduced him to the, you know, his co-star of Bottle Rocket, the incredible Luke Wilson, who I'm channeling oh, yeah. tonight. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, shit, we're playing each other. That's crazy. We're playing the brothers. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. So the, so, the, so the Wilson brothers really make up um, Wes Anderson's earlier movies as writers and stars. Right. Uh, in terms of like, uh, it gets to 2004 and he meets the incredible filmmaker, I hope I pronounce it right, Noah Baumbach, I Noah, think. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's so right. he becomes his co-writer for things like Zizou. Mm. And, um, he wrote French Dispatch as well. And he wrote the French Dispatch that as just, well. That one's on the yes, brain. Yes. So. Then Jason Schwartzman, who oddly enough, actually fun fact of the day, is the cousin of Sofia Coppola and Nicolas Cage. Crap. Yeah. So did he, of, did he also change his name because he didn't want the association? <laughs> Basically. Like, he's the, therefore, he's the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola and Talia Shire, which, right, is, right. which is insane. Uh, and so it's absolute nepotism, baby. Oh, totally. I mean, well, I mean all, the couple, all the Coppolas are. And the whole point of Nick Cage was he wanted to. He wanted to eschew that, right, by getting a, getting a Marvel Comics character. But unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. Schwartzman would be a really lame Marvel Comics character to name <laughs> yourself after. Yeah, yeah. And then Schwartzman becomes a writer on the Dodging Limited. Right. And then he, Roman Coppola, another son of there Francis Ford Coppola, <laughs> he takes on writing credits on uh, things like Dodging Limited and Moonrise Kingdom. Um, yeah. 
which film did we talk about first? Shit, man. I mean, there's a there's a pretty serious, uh, contentious debate about uh, about the Darjeeling Limited, and I figure it's only it's only fair if we one, start with that one, don't we? Yeah, we the opened Darjeeling, it with it. I've I don't know. I okay. So I've watched the Darjeeling Limited, I think, like five times, uh, maybe more. It's four um, and a half more times than I ever got through. <laughs> <laughs> I should tell you how I feel about that. That's movie. a lot of them. Yeah, no, that's a lot of pe- that's a lot of people's opinions on Darjeeling Limited. It's right. either it's either like it's like overly cold, overly estranged, mm-hmm. stylistically at least. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other, um, the, the other, I guess, um, more um, post-structuralist yeah, here um, we go. critic, which is the one orientalism, is mm-hmm. that it's like the Darjeeling Limited is like fundamentally it's um, a movie which racializes the Indian characters by literally just like subsuming them as sure. like background effects in the setting and just putting them in, and they're, they're set props for sure. They're just they're just like props, and that's like channeling like the Hollywood movies of um, things like The River mm. or um, or like Black Narcissus and stuff. Okay. And Said draws two really important distinctions in his book Orientalism, which I think we've both read. And like, oh, Ed Said, you said yes. It's the um, it's the sexualized female mm-hmm. and the sort of impotent male, and okay. the the way that like the white sort of gaze sort of assimilates them into like exactly what they want. Like, and so I've watched a, a bunch of breakdowns of this particular criticism, and I'm not gonna lie, they have validity. Mm. I think the character of Rita on the train. Um, she would be the person you cast as the sort of overly sexualized, sure. sort of easy to sort of fuck like female yeah. character. And that's, I feel like that problem is not just to just sort of broaden the scope for a second. The problem is not exclusive to uh, to Darjeeling Limited when it comes to like the sexualization of women here. Especially, yes, the Orientalism uh, Orientalism critique is is perfectly valid and it makes a lot of sense. But you bring you're bringing something up here that's super astute. It's the sexualization of the women, um, and it's it's very important and astute to note that that Wes Anderson's female roles are not substantial. They're very, very rarely substantial female roles. And, like, every now and again, you'll just it's just naked woman in, in a scene just for the sake of it, just for the aesthetics of it, and then it's gone. So I completely hear you on that on that point. And yes. it, it's like what comes to immediate mind is there's that scene where the Devo song plays in Steve Zissou, and there's, the, uh, there's like, a montage of all of them getting ready. Um, and they're, they're, all, they're all doing stuff. And then Kate Blanchett is naked for one scene. There's literally, like, uh, what's her name? The model from the French Dispatch is naked. And then... And then uh, um, Tilda Swinton from the French Dispatch, also just naked out of nowhere, and it's just like, uh, I don't know, just coming back from Babylon, I think I'm kind of like, I'm kind of tired of, of naked women in films at this point, <laughs> like that overdoing oh, it, man. Oh, was terrible. Just, <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to, I'm just sort of going off yes. on a tangent here, but the Orientalism yeah. critique, um, I think, yes, on a superficial level, I do very much agree with the Orientalist critique of the movie. Mm-hmm. However, I think it is in, like aggressively different to a lot of the films it's been compared to, like Renoir's film The River, okay. and specifically the character of like the small, like the dancing, like erotically dancing Indian child sure. in Black Narcissus, okay. which is a film okay. of the 40s. And See, I, don't, I don't know much about these, so you're gonna have to. You're, you're probably gonna have to give me a little bit of background and probably a little bit of background to the listeners as well. Yes, Ori- Orientalism, um, as we know, is like a concept that developed in the late '60s and early '70s as a response to what um, Edward Said, a Palestinian American post-structuralist thinker, mm-hmm. thought was essentially the continued and continuing narrative of kind of um, Western art and Eurocentric arts depiction of. The Eastern world sure. as something it's just fetishization. No? It's fetish. It's yeah. That's that's exactly the term. It's sure. it's a kind of almost it's an almost fucking Freudian fetishization yeah. of all of these different like components of a very a very diversely like I don't know a very diverse series of different cultures into one sort of sure. conglomerate. Just reductionism, um, I suppose. That makes literally. sense. Literally, and um, Wes Anderson, I think, um, does succumb to a lot of this stuff. But I do also think. 
I do also think that he's almost like very self-aware about it in a sort mm. of critical sense. Okay. I think um, a lot of the inspiration, not just from these kind of Hollywood films like Ovals and even Lawrence of Arabia and stuff, you know, with mm. Alec Guinness doing fucking like blackface. Alec like, yeah, <laughs> it's wow. like, I forgot about that. It's like Bridge Over the River Quiet. He's drawing like really, really severely, whether you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, from Indian filmmakers like the um, like the incredible filmmaker Satyajit Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, and other Bollywood filmmakers who made, you know, this guy made films like the Apu Trilogy and the Music Room and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, mm-hmm. these are really incredible, like, Indian voices, which he's taking, I think, into account, especially when filming a specific part of the movie, which takes place in, like, around the one th- two-thirds of the way through, okay. which is set in an Indian village. I don't know if you got to this bit yet. I have not, no. I, so I think brothers, I turned it off. So the first half of the movie is on the train. <laughs> yes, I remember. I recall. <laughs> yeah, so the first part of the movie, like... The it's run, the running it's, through it's the train, on this train. Right? It's like yeah. some you know crappy metaphor for like journey or whatever. Sure. Yeah, like, keep stopping and starting. It's about like it's on the nose. So Adrian the, Brody, unfortunately, I don't know the interactive estrangement of the upper middle class white people, the privileged people that go in search of like what people have assumed the movie's about is like going in search of spiritual fulfillment, which is like a really like mm. done trope in Western media. Fucking right. eat, the, the pray, love, beat generation. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, they assume it's about two people, three people, sorry, looking for this kind of spirituality and like spiritual excess in response to the tragedy that is the death of their father, which mm. was the only parent they had a relationship with. When really what it is, it's three people attempting to run away from the tragedy itself okay. into the fucking supposedly loving arms of the orange lit, vibrantly colored uh, Indian landscape. I see. And okay. so they go to this place, and but they end up by the end they come to this village and one of so the circumstances which take them to the village is that they're trying to like rescue three Indian children like mm. who are about to die in like a river like a really like the rapids of a river and one of them sure. does mm. so they take the Indian boy back to uh, the village where his father mourns and the village mourns and the village instead of running away from tragedy in the sense that they those three of them are and the sense that their mother as well who's played by Angelica Houston has run away from them and responsibility their entire Fucking life that guy, Wes Anderson loves casting Angelica Houston oh, yeah. as like as she's like incredible mothers yeah, yeah she's incredible. only damn really typecasts the yeah. fuck out of her it's too bad but like just <clears throat> simply put like they see these um, they see these native Indian people actually engage with their grief and their mm. conflicts and okay. their sort of the tragedy of it all and which inspires them to pursue the real reason that's brought them back together mm. which is facing the abandonment problems they all have faced their entire life from being rejected by their mother okay. which brings them to their mother on a, a very unsuperficial basis and they get to their mother who is the epitome of the white savior complex and that's angelica houston you said yeah who's yeah. running away from her own shit mm. by like helping indian societies and little indian settlements okay. and villages okay okay and stuff and so i think the film is like actually like from a Marxian perspective, at least, incredibly class conscious. Mm. And I think the satire works in its favor. So would you argue that it's more like, mm, this is kind of like surface level here, but would you argue that it's more an ode to sort of that Oriental, like that Eastern <coughs> uh, 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 paradigm, rather than like necessarily parodying it or or like... Um... I think it's definitely parodying it because the three of them are like ultimately shown in an aggressively fish-out-of-water kind of situation. Okay. 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 And I think that's where a lot of the humor comes from. A sure. lot of the humor comes from the fact that they are in themselves quite intolerably privileged mm. and I think the film is very self-aware about that I think it's possibly with the exception of aspects of Rushmore and the Tenenbaums it's the first film he's made about literally ab- about like class I okay. would say okay. and I don't think that the the uh, sort of um, the place that it's set which is in a, fu- a fundamentally it's a post-colonial environment right. 
is exempt from that. Okay. I think there's definitely criticisms to be made about the Orientalist aspects, but I don't, I, I don't think it's as demonize, demonizable okay. as the mainstream is starting to make out. So then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question here because it's something that I was sort of thinking and mulling around in my head uh, for the past couple of days is that I, I believe that there's an interesting thesis I have about Wes Anderson and it is that every single film he's ever made boils down to one word. He's a very simplistic director, both in his in his symmetry, in his cinematography, in his soundtracks. He's very, it's all there for you, right? There's not a lot of hidden. In, there's not a lot of, like, uh, uh, um, I should say, like, room to infer. Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to Wes Anderson, I believe that every film reduces to some word. I would say Moonrise Kingdom is sort of, like, love. I think that Royal Tenenbaums is easily family. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, French Dispatch is art, right? Like, how do these all boil down into one words? Now, if I could ask you to sort of, on the spot, think about this for a second, where do you think the Darjeeling Limited falls into that equation? That formulation, rather. Well, family is an easy one, because right. it is probably one of the only themes, along with things like the loss of innocence, mm-hmm. and the juxtaposition between fucking the innocent catcher and the, in the brutal, yeah. fucking, like... The Darjeeling Limited, I think fundamentally boils down to estrangement. Okay. And that can be from surroundings, that can be from each other, that can be from a lot of different things. That can be, like, on a more theoretical level, like, that can be estrangement between, um, you know, colonized versus colonizer and things oh, like interesting. that. interesting. Okay. And so then... It's more of a social commentary than necessarily, like, an it's interpersonal also, one. Yeah, it's, okay. it's also, like, in, like, within the film itself, it's almost, like, semantic. I talked briefly about, like, the sort of the natural kind of estrangement, which is granted by extreme privilege between people, um, which I guess like is their ability, all of the brothers, to right. run away from whatever they're running away from. Fundamentally, it's the dad's death. Sure. But then at the same time, um, the little brother, Jack, he's running away from his ex-girlfriend. Adrian Brody's character, Peter, he's yes. running away from his pregnant wife ah. um, and responsibility. So there's always a secondary motivation. Okay. Francis is way com- more complicated than both of them, and that's Owen Wilson, and he's running away from... My favourite Owen Wilson performance by a mile, by the really? way. Really? Um, he's wow. running away from... Wow. <laughs> what? Had Sorry. to be done. Had, to, had be done. to be done. Had to be done. He's, he's running away from his depression, like from mm. his suicide attempt. Sure. And... Which is the problem? Which is why his face is right. Fractured. Right, he's he's got a yeah. fucked up face. Is he have a uh, he has a bandit on he's his nose? A, he's got everything on Something. his face. Yeah. Like he's got a cast because he drove his motorcycle into a tree right. on purpose. Right. And then so all of these people running away from everything, they're able to do this because they have the wealth and the money to sure. fly everywhere. Shocking that you think this is Owen Wilson's best performance when the Royal Tenenbaums just sitting right there. <laughs> Very surprising to me. Very surprising. Owen Wilson. Or Either that or Steve Zissou. I mean, fuck, he's better than Steve Zissou. The greatest, the gr- well, he's sitting right here. <laughs> the greatest Owen Wilson shot is in the Royal Tenenbaums where he's got the face paint on and he's on, I think he's on mescaline. Yes, he's, he's just, on, he's hopped up on mescaline and he drives the car into the, into the, into the living room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's such a phenomenal movie. You can't talk about the Dodgeting Limited as well, estrangement-wise, you know, like, without talking about the dialogue as well. The dialogue is like mm. weirdly kind of, um, it's written almost like, I think, there's a YouTube commentator called Thomas Flight. I think okay. he talks about this in one of his videos. Don't okay. quote me that. Sure. But like he talks about how all of the dialogue is almost like text dialogue. It's so like... like is it rigid? Every, it's robotic. It's so rigid. It's, it's so sure. analytical and artificial. It's like Wes Anderson... It's the, but it's like the style is so Wes Anderson in sure. like Steve Zissou and in The Dodging Limited. And a lot of people have a preference for Hotel Chevalier, the mm. accompanying short film. Sure. Because there's so little dialogue in it, yeah, and that is like that is like, so it leaves room to interpretation in a uniquely anti Wes Anderson way. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's a very visual short film, as mm-hmm. the best short films are, mm. and 
and the Darjeeling Limited in itself, it's I would say yeah, I think it's about estrangement in almost every single way. It's what it's the it's it's one of the only films where Wes Anderson's you know a very common theme and Wes Anderson alienation in general right is at the forefront. Interesting. Of it. Okay. Um, and I think that I think that this is actually a fantastic segue to the next point because I think that the exact opposite. Um, it's interesting that you should say estrangement is one of his earlier films because I think that a lot of the films. Uh, later on down the line in his in his you know, filmography are about coming back together like you know after estrangement I think the Royal Tenenbaums is a fantastic yes. example of sort of coming back together I think Steve Zissou I mean fuck the whole movie is about like Steve and his it's about Zissou and all of his estranged family members right like his Owen Wilson's his son Angelica Houston's his wife they come back together after who knows how long like it's very interesting that he's decided to shift his focus and to my knowledge I cannot think of a movie post Darjeeling Limited that Wes Anderson has directed that is about estrangement. Why do you think that is? Estrangement. Um, well, I think, I think Wes Anderson's budget has slowly increased, <laughs> and I think Very his fair. purview started to turn more towards more grandiose subjects like yeah. history. Is family what the yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel is about? Still haven't seen it, by the way. Still oh, only one, uh, only I one I haven't I, seen. Saving it's, it for it's a, a very for a done game. movie because it's like so cited as like oh it's his best movie. So I've heard. Ever. So like I've it's heard. it's hard to refute that to be fair. Mm. But um, I, I think it's very easy to refute that. And you just say watch the last fifteen seconds of Steve Zissou. Steve Zissou. Yeah, I mean yeah. shit. That's the fucking some of the best which, cinema I've actually, ever seen. We should talk about Steve Zissou now. I think we should. I think it's all roads lead to Steve Zissou at this point. So what's your relationship with the movie? All right. Well, so. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou uh, stars Bill Murray, Angelica Houston, Owen Wilson. I think that's Kate Blanchett who plays the reporter, uh, and opposite, and they are opposite, uh, and Willem Dafoe opposite Jeff Goldblum. It's a hell of a star-studded cast. Like it is, it is phenomenal. It's the first Wes Anderson movie. <clears throat> it is. It is. It is truly and quintessentially him, and his style comes from this movie. Now, the interesting thing about this film is that yeah, it's like you know Steve Zissou puts together this crew of people who tries to get his family back together. All that, you know, it's very, it's very Wes Anderson. But what's interesting to me is that I grew up um, reading the books of and watching the uh, the film of um, uh, Jacques Cousteau. And Jacques Cousteau is the man who Steve Zissou is like, very obviously based off of. He's this sort of oceanographer, this this uh, this deep-sea diver. It, it escapes me at the moment what Jacques Cousteau's accolades are and how he's decorated and how why he's important in the annals of history. But... Um, it's very interesting to see Wes Anderson's take on the guy because it's obviously satirical. It's obviously funny. You know, Bill Murray's playing the guy. But <clears throat> my relationship to the film was initially the fact that I grew up, you know, on Jacques Cousteau before I knew who Steve Zissou was. My father was a sailor for very many, for very many years, so he, he sort of raised me on this, uh, this like, culture of the ocean coming from Jacques Cousteau. Um, I, I think he, the movie is fundamentally very, very, very well done uh, in terms of its themes of family, its themes of discovery, self-discovery, discovery of, of the other as well um, to a certain psychological, psychoanalytic standpoint. Um, I think that – and then just to sort of cap it all off, like I am adamant in my position that I believe this to be his best movie. Like mm-hmm. I think Steve Zissou is fundamentally his best movie. Um, and I think that – while it may not be his greatest like filmographic achievement, like I think that the Royal Tenenbaums argument is surely there. Like that, like maybe Steve Zissou's not the film that Moonrise Kingdom is, or like the film, sorry, excuse me, that you know Darjeeling Limited or Grand Budapest Hotel are. But fundamentally, its watchability I think super, like surpasses all of that. Like Steve Zissou is a movie you can watch over and over and over again because it's fun. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it doesn't take itself like too seriously. Yeah. In the way that you know the Royal Tenenbaums does, it's a heavy ass movie when you, you you can't watch that shit every day. Royal Tenenbaums is a heavy ass movie. I yes, was actually gonna, I was gonna say that. So I watched this movie a 
few years ago. I had never seen it before. Okay. And I bought it on Criterion Collection. There you are, Criterion. I bought it on Criterion. One thing we have that you Brits don't get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get we get a few. We get like three <laughs> of them maybe. Yeah. But like, so I bought it on Criterion, and I remember watching it, and I, I was in my sort of you know mid-teen Wes Anderson phase that sure. most film geeks go through and then they go out of it because they think it's like too popular and then suddenly they're just like oh this is actually quite good and the then they eternal get return it. it's Nietzsche man it's and Nietzsche then, literally no but you think it's just funny <laughs> when you're a teenager and then you go back and you're just like oh wow no like marvelously he's, he's profound doing, he's doing really really sad like deep really kind of almost tragic things in these vibrant color palettes which trick you yeah. like no and that's the thing and that's that, like a paramore song the incredible almost. conflicts of wes anderson and yeah. i think one of the like one of the ways that he can reconcile like this really like beautiful aesthetic with the really sort of quite sometimes often quite morose subject matter yeah. is is through the sort of quirks of the different characters and the dialogues and things like that i think right. the dialogue and i think the comedy specifically the comedy if the for me isn't funny or tragic comic in whatever way, it doesn't really work. Agreed. And the idiosyncrasies of each character are very, it's like very the important. bridge point. Agreed. Yeah. No, yeah. no, totally, totally. So I rewatched it again a few days ago um, in preparation for this because sure. I figured you know, it comes up. It's got terrible critical reviews. I know. It never clicks with me. Why? Yeah, it's got really bad reviews, and the audience score isn't fantastic. It's yeah. like 7-2 or something on IMDb. Or yeah, like, yeah. I don't remember. And then it's... So I watched it again, and I now think it's probably my second favorite after the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the Royal Tenenbaums is like classic. I mean, I think I don't think you can go wrong with it. Like Steve Zissou is really amazing, and I was thinking about for a second what makes it so good. Yeah, and as far as I can tell, it's about like losing control. It's Mm. about a, a dude with pretty antiquated view of the world who's, like, obsessed with his own tradition, and it's about a filmmaker, and film directors are the most, like, you know, OCD, miniaturization, I have to have it my own way. Yeah, I just watch Babylon, don't worry. I'm well well familiar with this phenomenon. Any movie about movies, like, Steve Sissi's got to be one of the best films about films, like, I have ever seen. Yeah. Like, it is outstandingly funny. Yeah, indeed. But it's also, like, outstandingly sad. And, and, and like, so, for example, the way that um, Steve Sissi copes, for example, with losing his best friend at the start of the movie... Right, and then spoilers alert and shit. But like you know, losing his son at the end of the movie, and all of this stuff is through filmmaking. It's through adventure. It's through attempting to gain control of the subject of the camera, which is the ocean. Right, and the ocean is always out of his grasp. Right, it's a beautiful metaphor, really. The jaggy, it's a fucking Moby Dick metaphor. Hell like, yeah, the, the fucking white shot, wall, man. man. <laughs> the jaggy, the three, okay, the three like books. Apparently, apparently, mm. Wikipedia tells me that this <laughs> movie draws for is Moby Dick, Great Gatsby. Uh, I don't that, really know that how. That kind of shocks me. I don't, I don't see. And that. the Magnificent Ambersons. Um, which never is, read the third, but I, I'm familiar with the first and I've read the second. I haven't second. read the third. I've watched the movie. Um, okay. It's just like an old, old movie about mm. like um, industrialization, okay. which I guess makes sense. Um, there's a certain like childlike kind of picture book quality to it, which a lot of Wes Anderson's sort of, um, which I guess the aesthetic of a lot of his movies have yeah. in the first place. Um, I mean, speaking to that child book thing, just to bring the real Tenenbaums back, it's like yeah. there's one specific thing that comes to mind whenever I hear someone talk about like the childlike whimsy of, of Wes Anderson, and it is Ben Stiller's characters walking up the stairs, and, uh, and Gene Hackman, he, he's almost storming up the stairs even, and Gene Hackman calls him down, and he's like, you know, why is your brother mad at me, or something like that. Something, Some very, very adolescent dialogue between the two of them ensues, and what's funny is that Gene Hackman's this old fart, and Ben Stiller is like a middle-aged man, yet they're talking like, <laughs> 
like it's a like it's a father to his son, like a, like an infant son, like not infant son. I should say toddler yes. son to his, yeah. his father. And it, it's, it's very interesting how how Wes Anderson managed to manages to evoke all this childlike wonder in in in, in any shot and just sort of tricks you into it. And yeah, yeah. It may not be may not be pertinent, but it just came to mind immediately. What's hilarious actually in Wes Anderson is that like he subverts kind of your expectations of adulthood and ad- and like childhood, but right. because like the adults act like kids and the kids act like adults. Bingo. And that's like not something I think should be to like just taken in stride. Like it's oh, yeah. like so in the Royal Tenenbaums, like the whole tragedy which begins at the start of the movie is is that like the Tenenbaum kids leave home with such expectation, achieve right. nothing, nothing exactly. and then they all have to swarm back to Angelica Houston. Yeah, exactly. And that's like the essential premise for the rest of the for the rest of the movie. <clears throat> exactly. Exactly. So Steve's yeah, I mean Steve Zissou, like the Jaguar shark, like it's something he didn't realise existed. Yeah. And he's the, supposed to be the incredible oceanographer. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't know existed. Not only did he not realize it existed... Well, I mean, to a certain extent, friend. nobody really takes him seriously as well, right? Like This is true. This is so true. He's, he's, he's not necessarily an incredible oceanographer. What's beautiful about the movie is the fact that he's so tongue-in-cheek and that he's yeah, <laughs> really he's going yeah. toe-to-toe with Jeff Goldblum, who is also <laughs> similarly not taken seriously. Like, the whole... the whole There's sort of a fetishist disavowalism to the whole thing. Like, you gotta, like, sort of take a step back and realize that, like... Yes, he's not like. Yes, he's like he's wonderful and he's clearly beautiful at his job and he's amazing. But also, like, you're kind of laughing at Bill Murray in this film. Like, that's what you're doing. Yeah, it is. you're, <coughs> also, you're laughing degree. at him for um, whatever attempts he has to like regain like a loss sense of control. Of there you control. go. Like, yep. so like the Kate Blanchett character who he mm. like just objectively just wants to fuck. Right. Like she's having sex with his son and the way he reacts to that, really you know, poorly. Blah, blah blah blah. Five <laughs> minutes later, there are pirates attacking. Right. And I think. So a really good example of like the way that the film tries it's almost like in conflict with it with like within itself it's the yeah. way so suddenly his son shows up out of the blue was not anticipating that could not have right. controlled that mm-hmm. then suddenly it cuts to this scene which we've got to play now mm. um I think it should work as an as as an audio thing but like uh, suddenly he's introducing his boat and right. the boat is like this is a great scene he has complete control over it's his like it's boxes within boxes frames within frames it's structured like a doll's house it it's is something he can moves between rooms yeah, yeah it's like it is sort of an expanded miniaturized project of his own invention which he can gain control of yeah and it suddenly cuts to that and it cuts back and forth it's like a kind of war of attrition within the movie itself it's mm. dare i say almost dialectical ah, i'm gonna kill you <laughs> <laughs> Let's, yeah. get, let's get it on. Notorious, get notorious anti-Hegelians in the studio right now. <laughs> We've got a beautiful score by Mark Mothersbaugh. Mark Mothersbaugh, right? Mark Mothersbaugh, the guy Mothersbaugh. from Devo. The guy from Love Devo him. who scores Wes Anderson's first four movies, I believe. Right. And then um, then he turns to the stupendous Alexander Splat. There we go. So. There's a couple of more cones there as well. Yeah. In any event, so this is a scene from Steve Zissou. And I think I, I just really quickly before we put it on, I do want to mention that your observation is absolutely astute. And what I think is very interesting is how anal he is when he's describing all of these little compartments in the ship. He's describing every single little thing. And you'll hear this in the clip that we're about to play. But it's like it's very interesting how his attempt to grasp, his attempt to control takes shape in naming everything, as in, like, he is taking control of it by naming it in a very post-structuralist way. See, there we go. We always come back to this post-structuralist idea, is that you own something. You take you take leadership. There's a quote from the genealogy of morals. Like, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, Nietzsche likes to say that um, the, the royal lordship, the ownership of something is taken by the naming thereof, which I think is very interesting here. And uh, not to be too much of a pretentious asshole, but, you know, I think it works. So, enjoy. This is a quote from The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. 
God, I love that scene. Um, it's it, so nice. It's Exposition so is so Something wonderful. Something I forgot to say, I think, as well, is that Wes Anderson, a lot of people take him completely for granted as this guy that's just, just like, like it's excessive. It's like a splurge of the imagination. He's just attempting Maximalism, to... Maximalism, sure. Ma- yeah, completely. He's just attempting to, like, mimic any kind of, like, painting with, like, his sort of flat framing and, like, the um, symmetry and everything. He's so anal about his, like, framing and cinematography and things. Mm is that, like, his films are, like, incredibly, not just nuanced, emotionally complex and stuff, is they're really self-referential. And yeah, I, I, find, I find this one, especially uh, Zizou, um is it Zizou or Zizou? I thought I was thought it was Zizou. Someone, but, uh, to- someone I could okay, be. Okay, I was talking about it with someone and they said Zizou and it confused me, but I think it's <laughs> Zizou. Um, anyway, so, but, like, um, this movie's about, like, the intricacy of, like, the filmmaking perspective. Like, right. it's about being anal as an artist yeah. and he's really interested in like writers specifically in his movies I know like Margot, Margot Tenenbaum, Tenenbaum exactly and the Owen Wilson say. character in that in that right. and then Jack in the Darjeeling Limited mm-hmm. and um, of course the French Dispatch which is like the entire thing Everybody. is a love letter to journalism it is um, so and got art, characters, art general but. he's got characters the French Dispatch is the one that I've, I've watched most recently so just to say so I'll say a word about it really quickly is that his love letter writing he's got Jeffrey Wright's character is based on James Baldwin which I always think is so so okay, fucking phenomenal cool. it is really fucking yeah. cool um, I don't remember quite who everybody is based on some somebody else um, like everybody is very clearly in that movie is very clearly a caricature of like a well known writer there's a I think Joseph Mitchell is his name who's a uh, Sazerac who is Owen Wilson's character in that movie is clearly based off of Joseph Mitchell which is an old New Yorker writer um, and then at the end of the movie, I, qu- I can't quite remember who um, Francis McDormand's character is referencing, nor really who Adrian Brody or um, or uh, Tilda Swinton's characters are referencing in the, in the first vignette there. Mm-hmm. But I do know that at the end of the film, he has this special thanks to, and it's a list of all of the writers that he's inspired by that, that all have a certain place in this film, which I think is just, just lovely, just, that's, just wonderful. That's really cool. And I think we should talk a little bit more <coughs> about The French Dispatch later, I agree. actually, because I think The French Dispatch was like quite unjustifiably overlooked when it came mm. out. Again, not a great critical like lineup of reviews. I, I don't understand why. Um, but we'll talk about it when we get We'll there. talk about it. But in terms of Steve's suit, like that is an incredible scene and uh, in case anyone is wondering, the ending sort of lines about like his wife leaving him and his wife not actually loving him is done in voiceover actually yeah. over the scenes of the boat and stuff. Again, I think really like showing two conflicts, the conflict of his like control versus lack of control right. and then the conflict between the incredible sort of like a magical, almost like childlike way that this shot versus beautiful the, versus the reality of, which, of what yes. is causing him to feel this way about the yeah. ship. Absolutely and true. Then, and then the really like horrible shit that's going on with his own personal life, like Indeed. his own retroactive jealousy combined with his own inability to express himself yeah. in any way other than f- like filmically and docu- in a documentary oceanographical sense. Yeah, exactly. Sure, but um. What he you... also tends to he also tends to sort of move away from this grief this, these problems in in search uh, sorry by finding himself in the search for something else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that I think that the most important plot of this movie um, is not his conflict with Jeff Goldblum. It's not his jealousy of his son. It's it's not all. I think that the most important part of this, the underlying I want to say B plot, just because of how important it is, is his search for the for the jaguar shark. Right, his search for the thing—it's—it's it's almost this other, right? It's this mm-hmm. thing that is so coveted. It's Lacan, it's Lacan's like objet petit a. It is the unattainable object of desire. And what makes it so beautiful is that towards the end there, spoilers for anybody who who is interested in seeing this movie, um, click off now. I'll give you a second for it while I'm still rambling on here. But the beautiful part of this movie is the scene wherein he finds 
the jaguar shark at the end there and like every time i hear it's beautifully soundtracked by Sigur Ross's masterpiece Staralfer, um, which I think is is honestly one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema, and I would probably go on to say it is my favorite Wes Anderson scene. Full stop. Yeah, and a lot of people have criticized this movie for its like dependence on ironic humor. Yeah, and I would say that's an incredibly misplaced sentiment. Mm, mm-hmm. I think I think I think the film more sense, irony. The film's sense of humor is actually like it's really undertoned with. A, a, sincerity I would say which Agreed. is actually like, yeah. a, like I would say it's a movement away from like Rotana bombs and Rushmore and stuff like sure, that sure, because sure. I think that I think I think the sense of humor is very childish and surreal in a lot of capacities sure whereas and, and another good example I would say is the ending of this scene where like he's looking at the shark and then he says like do you think he remembers me and stuff like that which a lot of people they a lot of people take, take they take it as oh, like man. a joke when yeah. it's it's no, not. It's, it's sincere. He's completely sincere. It's not. It's it's because it's the one thing that remains constant in his life is the search for this, the search yeah. for this damn thing. It's like he has found comfort in the constant nature of something that is so, you know, un like it's not even there in the first place. He's found comfort in the constant of their la- of the lack of a constant. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like he he is looking for something that is not there, and then finding it is this joyous. It's. Do I do I want to do I want to say the word? Is it is it jouissance? Like is it is it even? Are no, we going to go further down the? We're going to go further down the Lacanian rabbit hole here. We're doing but structuralist exactly. Right now. But, um, <laughs> it's a structuralist episode. Yeah, but his, his I think I think it's 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 not um, insignificant that in terms of like the soundtrack itself, yeah. it moves away from that kind of like. Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, kind of like Royal Tenenbaums. Thing. This is, and it this moves, is a good point. Yes. It moves towards this kind of these Brazilian, beautiful acoustic guitar renditions of Bowie. Agreed. And this Icelandic pop. <laughs> like this is the first Wes Anderson film that doesn't feature a Rolling Stones song on the soundtrack. Really? Yeah. Wow. So. Well, Let's that, play that, this. That this beautiful is, song. This Holy is a six-minute song. I really recommend you listen to all of it and pay attention to it because it is it is absolutely beautiful and it comes at one of the single most cathartic moments that Wes Anderson has ever put to screen. Yep. There is... Uh, there is a, there, there's a, there's a film made called like as I was moving ahead like occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty it's a bit of a mouthful but yeah, like seriously. it's it's it's, it's, like, it's a long documentary mm-hmm. and um, I'm paraphrasing as well that might not be the exact title but like um, Wes Anderson it's like it's a, it's a heap of maximalism and artifice right. and then occasionally it's adorned with these brief glimpses of beauty sure and this is one of the songs which completely epitomizes it. Sir Alfred Sigur Ross from the ending of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Yeah, there you go. That is an amazing piece of music. Oh yeah, that's an amazing piece of music, dude. Yeah. We love John C., the lead singer of Sigur Ross, who has a scored for um, uh, Cameron Crowe's piece of shit movie, We Bought a Zoo, starring Matt Damon. <laughs> One of the best examples, I reckon, of like an incredible soundtrack to a terrible movie. Like, mm. Hans Zimmer's done a lot of those. <laughs> no, yes, I, I, would, I, would, I would agree with that, and then I'd counter with the soundtrack to Batman vs. Superman because I think mm. horrible shit fucking film <laughs> but oh my god you're right Hans Zimmer's done that one it's Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL and they come up with some serious freaking bangers on that on yeah, that on that movie and then Christ that movie sucks that movie dude sucks. it is bad it, it is bad, bad bad movie yeah, but we're not talking about Zack Snyder no, 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 no. nor do well, we want to yeah. we're talking about <laughs> Wes Anderson. Okay, so uh, I, one thing I actually forgot to say, I think, about Steve Zissou and yes. Darjeeling Limited both, actually, oh, here is, we go. That the, like, is that the incredible color palette for both, the really limited sort of um, vibrant CBO'd. color palettes. Yeah, so absolutely. the one in Darjeeling Limited, of course, is... It's very you know, blue. It, 
Dodging Limited? Yeah, do you not think so? No, no, I think it's I think it's green, orange, and white because it's like the Indian. Flag. Oh yeah, I guess that like, makes sense. Especially the exteriors and stuff like that. It's working. I, I recall the train being being sort of blue, but I that think, may I be think, that may be because I, I think I, it's a more turquoise. That like, it's a kind yes, of yeah. That's what I'm, that's but what it's I'm but it, but again like juxtaposing like the real sort of trauma of the characters yeah. with the sort of beauty and. I would say sort of um, the warmth and the sort of happiness of like the external world or whatever Indeed. is like it's really like metaphoric of repression. <laughs> like yeah. it really is. <laughs> like it's repression of a lot of shit of a ch- of generally of childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. But in the case of Steve Zissou, it's it's PTSD and it's like loss Reasonable. fundamentally. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, and this is this is going to be one of our one one of one of my weaker transitions. But we have got. Um, Twelve minutes left, and we're going to talk about the French Dispatch. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> there was no, there was no way to lead into that one prettily. Yeah. But uh, in any event, my uh, my fun little hot take, just to sort of take the take the spotlight here for a second, is that I have seen the French Dispatch now twice in the last week. It's the most it's the most research I've done. Uh, the, the, mm, I should say it's the movie I've watched the most for research, anticipating this show, um, and it is. I think it is his funniest movie. I think that um, there is poor critical reception to this film because I think it it is, you know, like it can be viewed as overly pretentious. Like it's very clearly a love letter to shit you don't understand. It's it's a love letter to esotericism, like at its root, um, esoteric journalism. Like that's basically what it is. I mean, the whole plot of the movie is that it takes a. Um, it's like it's all nonsensical in that very like pretentious way. It takes a magazine that reports the happenings of the world and more specifically Ennui France um, and reports it to Kansas. Like the, mm-hmm. the magazine like is based Kansas in outlet, Kansas. Yeah. Yes, the magazine is based in Kansas and it reports the happenings of a fucking place in France, like a small town in France. It's like wow, that is so Wes Anderson. It's the like definition it's of a dichotomy. pretense. Exactly. <laughs> like, no, def- um, definitely the definition of pretense. And, and I think there's yeah. definitely arguments to be made about the French Dispatch that like it's um, it is like maybe the most Wes Andersonian oh, yeah. Wes oh, yeah. Anderson movie. It almost like, feels like a parody. You know what I mean? Like, like, it it's feels like his so quintessential. It does. Have you seen his commercials for like Prada and H&M and stuff? I think you've showed me them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they they bring years. a bell for sure. He started doing this like awkward postmodern thing where he started like <laughs> making fun of his own voice. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like he's doing he's doing it in, an, in, a, in a satirical way. He's making fun of his own sensibility. Yeah. And that is almost... If French Dispatch, I'm not going to like be like... We're gonna do it down too much, but it yeah. feels like a, like a one hundred minute parody of himself. <laughs> and for Indeed. someone that actually yeah. like really enjoyed like the Grand Budapest and stuff, which was like a and Moonrise Kingdom, which like really incredible balance, yeah, a really incredibly balanced movie stylistically, formally, humorly, thematically, yeah, sure, all of that shit. Like the French Dispatch. Um, when I first watched it, I have only seen it once in the cinema when it came out last year. Yeah. Or the year before, um, does feel like a bit much. It does. Okay. okay. I understand it, and I understand the um, that it is really funny. Yeah. It's really funny, and that it is like moderately, um, deliberately. Yeah. It's deliberately excessive. That and that's the, the point. point the humor. Yeah. The humor lies in the excess. Yeah. The maximalism. Yeah. There's an entire sequence where. Uh, Timothy Chalamet is arguing with I forget her name, but uh, the 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 lead that he's opposite in his little vignette, uh, the one with the motorcycle helmet, not Frances McDormand, it's the, uh, the, French, the woman, the French woman, yeah, the French yeah. woman, I don't, Lydia I don't something I believe is her name, but I don't I, remember I, actually. I don't that's remember. that's the sequence which features the song A Lion, yeah, indeed, on the jukebox, like yep. Mm-hmm. My, I think the most incredible the Jarvis thing, Cocker composition. Yeah, yes. one of my my favorite things about the French Dispatch actually was that, interestingly enough, so Wes Anderson has like. Um, aestheticized a lot of different art forms in his in his movies um, yeah. he's done theater um to an extent like he, those Steve's issues about documentary filmmaking mm-hmm. 
um, you know, blah, 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 Moonrise Kingdom features, like, you know, elements of photography, right. Budapest hotels, like, about that. art and bakery as an <coughs> art form and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then... This is like it's journalism. This is it? like meta theatrical in the way that like the sets, you know, for example, in like the Timothy Chalamet sequence in the center, they move around. They do. They move they around change, him. They revolve. Like, exactly. Indeed. It, yes. Like, and then the same thing happens in the the first chapter, the Benicio del Toro artist part, where mm. like there are like deliberate freeze frames, like they're stuck in motion in time instead. But like, they're not, it, and because it's just it's just yes, the camera's yeah. recording, and everyone's told to everyone's stay still. Just so there's that little humanity in it, you know? Yeah, like there are there are little flinches is, here and there. It is. It's and there's, beautiful. There's this like a really like almost unnatural looking theatrical like like proxemic of it. Yeah. Like and especially in the first bit, which is the bit that I rewatched <laughs> before this. Right. Right. Didn't right. finish it yet, but yeah. um, which it just like creates this real feeling like of instability, and I think that Indeed. works maybe best in the in the Chalamet part because it's about a bunch of like students who like they're re- they're like they're revolting they don't know what they're revolting necessarily for well, they do and it's silly that's the whole point, that's the whole that... point. <laughs> making fun of the may 68 revolution yes yeah, basically yeah. so that's another they're... reason i didn't yeah it. <laughs> <laughs> it totally pokes fun at it i mean part of the part of the movie's message is that like you know like you know revolutionary kids are kind of just like you know blowing smoke up people's asses which i think is a bit of a shit it's a fucking jack off message but um was that a quote-unquote like a like a um, well-intended liberal, yeah, and like that's it, the thing. So you get it right. in Isle of Dogs as well. Another movie yep. you could definitely like critique for Orientalism, but like yeah. it's like it's got the same message where like the sort of animal rights activists and stuff. It's like it's a classic liberal take. Like the people in power are evil, but mm-hmm. everyone else is stupid. Yeah, you're going about it wrong, right? Like <laughs> yeah. literally, the climax of that whole story is Francis McDormand tells the both of them like, do away with your political aspirations, go fuck. That's literally what he. That's literally that's how it actually ends. What she says. That's exactly yeah. how it ends. She says, "Go make love." Those are the words she uses verbatim. Um, yeah, and. It's it's just it's it's kind of it kind of undercuts it a little bit, um, but you know I think that that so it, there's that vignette and it, it gets undercut by the fact that its message is, is kind of inherently this just like middle of the road liberal won't take a side type deal, um, but I think that that the vignette still has value in its in its humor um, and I think that mm-hmm. it really underscore more so than any other vignette in the French Dispatch I think it. Uh, plays with how pretentious it is. And there's an entire sequence between Timothy Chalamet and his opposite, who I still don't remember what her name is. Do you want me to find out? You could, yeah. <laughs> might as well. We have Google on our phones. Um, Timothy Chalamet and this lead are just going back and forth to each other. Well, so Timothy Chalamet's friend gets drafted. Um, and the whole point of that sequence is that there's like a cafe where everybody has to disagree with each other just for the sake of it. Uh, and, and Chalamet <laughs> is arguing for his friend, and he's like, you know, it's, it's his duty. He got drafted. He's nothing he can do about it. And... Um, the uh, what's her name is saying like oh you know it's it's capitalist oppression her it's name capitalist. is here we go Lena Lena Kudry Kudry that's right it's Lena Kudry yeah. so Lena Kudry's character is is <clears throat> is arguing like oh you know you can't do it you should, you should burn his patch and and uh, and throw away everything and go AWOL and come back here and, and fight for the side of the good the right and the just and everything and like not feed into the, the, the military industrial comp all that crap but the way she says it is so fucking funny to me like she she says it in like these super long stringed like um, unnecessarily jargonistic words and the terminology that Chalamet uses in return is similarly whacked out and and, yeah. and, and pseudo-intellectual and pretentious as fuck. And it's just like the whole thing, you get to about <laughs> the fourth retort from back and forth them. You start realizing, okay, wait, this is not Wes Anderson. This is him parodying himself. <laughs> like, this is actually funny. I can laugh at this. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have to, like, try and get it because it's purposefully fucking stupid to be, like, 
maximalist. So I think that I think that yes, while the uh, while the moral of the of the second vignette there is a little questionable, uh, I think that it is just fucking funny, and you can just like sit back, let yourself enjoy it, and just laugh. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's I, just I you can just laugh agree. at it. I completely agree. I think the artist section at the start is probably my favorite, and that we briefly mentioned Tilda Swinter. Like that's like cross cut between um, multiple things but one of them being this like very pretentious again con- incredibly excessive and pseudo intellectual art critic right. talking about like this particular guy who just wanted to like paint the woman he loved like yeah. about how it's like you know it, whatever it's changed art history it's like ignited a movement and talking about like how <laughs> their relationship which is like superficial in my opinion at right. best yeah, yeah. like it's it was like, never it was never anything. it's 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 it is she never loved him back and he was obsessed with her like it's yeah, yeah. shit yeah. just talking about how their, their relationship is like so profound and about loneliness and entrapment and everything when yeah, it's not yeah. it's really not indeed and so we've got a piece of music to close this episode called a line which i don't know if it was written for the film or not it I, was i believe it's so yeah, yeah. it comes and with jarvis this, cocker comes yeah. with this excellent music video you can see on youtube which is animated and directed by wes anderson himself <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. and um this uh plays uh, a few times within the movie within the chalamet section and i think it's also the end credit song it is yeah this um, is a great piece of music it is indeed and it is uh jarvis cocker by the way for all those unfamiliar is the lead singer of pulp legendary brit pop band um and that's my that's my little music expertise sort of coming into play here and uh I, a line i believe is one of the one of the cooler, I think, Wes Anderson um, you know, soundtrack uh, OST songs, um, and I think that it's a fine way to to uh, to end the show by ending it mm-hmm. with you know his most recent credit scene. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. is the last thing he gave us. Why not make it the last thing we give you? Exactly. So there you go. Exactly. We're hoping to get this bow. episode on Spotify as soon as possible. Indeed. This will be the first episode that we get on Spotify <laughs> after our Daft Punk uh, shindig last week. Right, that was whack. Snafu, <laughs> snafu. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the song. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take care and have a good Wednesday. This has been 60 Plus Minus with Aiden Monks and Miles Silverstein. And the following is A Line by Jarvis Cocker from the French Dispatch. Hope you enjoy.